Joshua chapter 8 is where we'll be this morning. I'm going to take the whole chapter. It is uh, the chapter of the people of Israel defeating Ai. This is the second run at it. Chapter 7 is when they were defeated. Chapter 8 is when God gave them victory. We'll read just a little bit of it and try to cover all of it in the course of the sermon. So if you found that, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. If you're a guest with us today or if you haven't been here in some time and go through a book of the Bible, we've been in Joshua since May. We've seen the ups and downs of God's people. We've seen God continually doing great things with His people. Chapter 7 was a dark chapter. You, you have to take 6, 7, and 8 together. Chapter 7 was a dark chapter. The sin of Achan, one man, caused much trouble in Israel to the degree that Joshua was overcome with grief and they purged it by killing this man named Achan. That was the punishment of his sin. He was judged and judged rightly. And then right after that is where we're going to pick up. I want to back up in chapter 8 to the last verse in chapter 7 so you get a little bit of the context as we come forward. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin chapter 7, verse 26. Achan has been stoned and burned. Verse 26. They raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord, he turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Take all the, fighting men, all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us just as before, we shall flee before them. They will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city for they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush, seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. Now pause there. The rest of the story is a complex, um, detailed account of how Israel won this battle. And the king there in Ai is killed. He is judged by God. I want to take you to the end of the story in verse 29. Look what Joshua did to the king of Ai. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree, and they threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city. They raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. We started this Bible reading with a heap of stones that stands there to this day. We, we ended it with a Bible reading of a heap of stones that stands there to this day. Both of them signs of God's judgment on sin. 
Father, help us. Speak to us. Encourage the hearts of your people. Draw us close. Strengthen our resolve. Find us faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Gerald and the choir led us this morning singing about forgiveness. So much of who we are as Christians and so much about what we believe, even as human beings, has to do with forgiveness. What happens when you're forgiven? You have someone you love, maybe a husband or a wife, a friend, had a terrible argument, maybe you committed some sort of sin against that person, you, re- you recognize that, you apologize for that, you seek forgiveness, forgiveness is given. What happens after? It's important for us as Christians to, to get a grasp on what does forgiveness actually do? To be forgiven by someone close to you, to, to be forgiven by God. What does it mean? What, what does it mean to, to be someone that is a sinner that has faced judgment? To be convicted of sin, to understand the need for punishment. I mean, even in the story, Achan is punished. We started, what a way to start a sermon, with a man being judged in sin uh, and killed for his sin and a pile of rocks. And to end the reading with a pile of rocks on top of a man being judged for sin. Well, what about after? In a Christian context, we think about the cross. You have to always think about that as a Christian and God's judgment. God's judgment really doesn't find relief except at the cross of Jesus. And so what happens when you give your life to Christ, believe in the atoning death of Jesus, what happens after? The story in front of us has been one of judgment. We've been talking about sin and And how God judges it for a couple of weeks now. And finally we come up out of the valley of ache or the valley of trouble. And find this story of redemption. This story is given to us. The Apostle Paul would say that the scriptures, they're given to us to strengthen us and to teach us. So what does this story teach us. Let's start back with Joshua. Joshua has experienced victory. He's led the people doing so. Jericho was a wonderful victory. You know that the walls came down and everything went well. After Jericho, the people were filled with pride. They forgot to actually ask God to help them. Even Joshua seems to have slipped in that regard. He sends the people out to spy out the land. They say that, look, we can take the The kingdom of Ai, don't send everybody up here. They didn't consult God. They didn't ask for the Lord's help. And so Joshua sent 3,000 people up and they found out that without God, they're in trouble. What they didn't know is Achan, a man named Achan, had taken the things that God had said not to take. 
back in Jericho. Just like the Bible says, be sure your sins will find you out. That sin was found out and we picked up in Achan's, we picked up in his judgment. But that's not where it ends, is it? Judgment happens and after judgment, the anger of God is taken away. What happens after forgiveness? What, what happens after grace? We are a people of grace. We live in grace. We believe in grace. And grace defines who we are. And this morning, you sitting here, you, you live in grace or you don't really live at all. Have you believed in the grace of God found in Jesus? What I'd like to do is take this uh, story and just pull out some truths about grace. I've got uh, five or six, seven or eight points here uh, for you this morning. We'll see how, see how it goes. We'll see if we can go very quickly. Here's the first one. Number one, I want you to see that grace actually does restore hope. One of the great things that grace does is that it restores hope. Let me show you where I get that. You can go back uh, to chapter 7. Chapter 7 has the failure of God's people because of sin. And you see Joshua lamenting. You see him just weeping in front of the ark. The elders are there with him. They put dirt on their heads. It's like they're at a funeral. After that, God reveals what the sin is and they take care of it and there is judgment. Now, that's what I want to point your attention to. Um, I, I tried to point out two different piles of stones. Those two piles of stones in chapter 7, verse 26 and chapter 8, verse 29, they serve as bookends in this story and everything that happened in between them. But they're not only bookends. Those two stories and two piles of stones happen to be shadows. They happen to be reminders. They, they are they are whiffs of the scent of the gospel of Jesus. You know, throughout the pages of Scripture, there are footprints everywhere. And, and what I want to do this morning is take those two things and hold them up like you would an expensive piece of paper. And there you might see a watermark in that paper. You're not really sure what it is, but you know that it's there. I want to look at these Scriptures and show you that the gospel is there. Chapter 7, verse 26, when Achan is judged and he's killed for his sin, you'll notice what the text says in verse 26, that the Lord turned away from his burning anger. One of the things that's good for us to remember is that the, the sin that we commit, the sinners that we are, it's not just that we are broken, it's not just that we are hurting, it's not just that we need help, Sin is that which incites the wrath of God. And we need something to happen to turn away the wrath of God. And this little watermark of the gospel reminds us that there is a sacrifice, there is a judgment for all sinners. And that judgment is turned away. The wrath of God is turned away. Here comes the gospel. The wrath of God is turned away from His people because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Anytime you see judgment there and the, you might use the word propitiation, that, that means 
God takes away the wrath. Or expiation, that means God takes away the stain of sin. Either way you want to look at it, what you find there is here is the turning. Here is a shadow of what Jesus does for us on the cross. Then you come across and you find over in chapter 8, what you find there is a curse. We talked about the wrath of God. That's propitiation. This is what it does for how God is toward us. A curse is what we are toward God. At the end of chapter 8 and verse 29, there you find Ai. He has been punished for his sin as all Canaanites would be. They were not believers be punished for his sin. And you'll notice that after he's killed, Joshua hangs him on a tree. You see that in verse 29, chapter 8? Isn't this delightful to read about for your children, hanging on a tree? I've started out with death, ending with death. It's important for us to look at it, though. Here, Here is this curse. And when you read that, if you know the Bible, what you ought to think about is in Deuteronomy 21, where God tells the people of Israel, cursed is any person that hangs on a tree. In fact, it shouldn't happen overnight, which when you read it there, I started thinking, where are some of these parallels or some of these shadows? And what I thought of when Joshua cut his body down because the sun was going down, I was reminded when Jesus Christ was crucified, hung on the tree between two thieves. They wanted to make sure that they would expedite them dying. So the soldiers came through and broke the legs of the thief on one side, the thief on the other But Jesus already was dead. Why were they doing that? They were doing that because you couldn't leave them overnight. The Sabbath was coming. They were cursed. And when I thought about that king of Ai being cursed, any man that hangs on a tree is cursed. I thought that should have been me. When I thought about Achan and the punishment for his sin, his sin really didn't seem that bad. Did it need to be burned in stone? That should have been me. But instead, the gospel tells me that Jesus Christ took the wrath of God and turned it away from me so that I don't have to be like Achan. Or the gospel tells me that Jesus Christ became. Isn't that what, isn't that what Paul said in Galatians chapter 3? Didn't he tell us that, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming like Ai, by becoming a curse for us? Because it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And the gospel of grace is that none of you here have to either be Achan or the king of Ai. Because of the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace needs to be said explicitly. When I say the gospel, here's what I mean. God is holy. We are sinners separated from God by our sin. Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man lived on this earth perfectly, fulfilling the law, went to the cross to be the curse, took the wrath of God, chapter 7, took the wrath so that the wrath was turned from us. And the promise of the gospel is that any person that believes that, that's the response, any person that believes that will be saved. And that is saved by grace. You see, grace... It restores hope. This, this passage here starts to be filled with hope in chapter 8. Let me give you something else to consider. Number two, if grace, um, grace restores hope, number two, grace works immediately. Let me show you what I mean. Now remember that the Bible was not originally written with chapters and verses in it. 
Those chapters and verses are there for our convenience. They help. When I say turn to Joshua chapter 8, you can fan through and see Joshua and go right to chapter 8. You find it pretty quickly. I take you to the verse. You know where to put your finger. They weren't there originally. And if that's the case, we need to read it like it's written without the numbers. And if you do that, listen to the flow of chapter 7, verse 26, going right into chapter 8. Let me read it to you. They raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear. Now, when you read that all together, it feels like this happens right after this terrible judgment in chapter 7. What a kindness. You understand this is a second chance now for the people of Israel. They've already messed up once in Ai. God's given them a second chance. There are some of you sitting here, second and third. You, the chance that God has given you. It's a, it's a picture of, of grace. What a kindness of the Lord after all that's happened. Isn't it good that right here in this forgiveness there's no probation? There, there's no waiting period. There's no cooling off time. There is not God putting them in a penalty box. There's no time out that, okay, let's just see how you do, Joshua. And if you do okay, then I'm going to be with you. Now, at the end of chapter 7, the wrath of God is turned and immediately. Listen, brothers and sisters, some of you need to get hold of that, that the past, the past is the past. We need to leave that there. That if your sins have been washed by the blood of Jesus, as we sang about this morning, that means they're washed away and they're in the past. Do you know the phrase, go and sin no more? Do you remember in John chapter 5 when Jesus healed the invalid and, and there was a lot of confusion. And while that confusion was going on, Jesus came up to him and said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he? It, it's me. And Jesus said to him, Stop sinning, go and sin no more. Or, or more importantly, if you go in the Bible and you turn over to John chapter 8, you'll find the story of the woman caught in adultery. John chapter 8 is put in brackets because most of us don't know exactly where it fits in the gospel of John, except to say it does fit. And the story is of the woman who's caught in the very act of adultery, drugged to the presence of Jesus Right in front of holiness, Jesus does something on the ground we don't know, and they, they, they walk away. Jesus says, where are your accusers, woman? She said, there's not anymore. And Jesus says to her, immediate grace, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus on the cross Either side, he has a criminal, one to his right, one to his left. One of those criminals is hurling insult on him. The other realizes his predicament. I deserve to be on this cross. He turns and looks to Jesus and asks, please remember me. And Jesus said to him, you don't have to wait. Look, there's nothing that thief was going to be able to do to gain respect, to be a better man. Jesus said, now, today. I'm wondering, if you have been forgiven of something that's really, really bad, why do you hold on to that guilt? What is the residual effect of the guilt in your life? 
It is not helpful and it is not godly and it's not good for you. Or, or maybe you have been heinously sinned against. You've been sinned against. And you hold on. You said you forgave, but there's this residual bitterness. Why are you holding on to that, that nasty bitterness? The, the reminder is that when grace comes, it, it, it happens immediately. Grace happens immediately. Let me give you something else. I need to move quickly. Here's the third point, number three. That is that grace establishes courage. Grace establishes courage. Do you see it right there in verse 1? It's the first thing that the Lord says. What a great, what a great kindness from God to come off this terrible incident in chapter 7 and turn to Joshua right there in verse 1. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear. Read the Old Testament 39 times. In the Old Testament, God says to His people, do not fear. What an encouragement to Joshua, who beforehand in chapter 7 was saying, Why did you let this happen? What are we going to do now? And God says to Joshua, Do not fear. It's the same thing he said to Abraham, said to Moses, says it to Joshua. Uh, he goes into the to Judges, said it to Gideon, to the wisest man that ever lived, to Solomon. He goes to the prophets. All of them had good reason to fear. He says it to Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the Gospels. Go read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there you find Jesus saying to his disciples, don't, don't be afraid. God spoke to Paul in his missionary journeys in Acts. Do not fear. Flip back to the book of Revelation. Kyler took us there a couple of weeks ago. Flip back and hear the exalted Jesus say to those who are going to be martyred and, and persecuted, brothers and sisters, you need to strengthen your heart for what we're going to face. Hear Jesus say, do not fear. Listen, the more you fear God, if you can develop this holy awe of who God is and His great... The more you fear God, the less you fear everything else. The more you can cultivate that in your heart and mind and have it seep into your soul. I got lots of, I got lots of friends in the ministry. A lot of preacher friends. Many of them really struggling. It's been a hard 18 years. Uh, 18 years. 18 months. It's kind of dog years when you're in the ministry. 18 months. And a lot of them are, are struggling with, with decision fatigue. Decision fatigue. You make a decision, you know it's going to be wrong. You know that, you just, especially with all that's gone on with COVID, you make a decision, you know it's going to be wrong. I, you can, I, can, I can make a decision. I got hit two Sundays ago with two people mad at me. One was really mad because we are still seeing people wear masks Another was really mad at me because I hadn't done enough to get masks on people. Now, you talk about feeling drunk when you hear that kind of thing. I mean, it's just fatigue. Or, or the, this overreaching with the government or, or what's going to happen with COVID and the Delta Sigma 5 variant. <laughs> or, or the vaccine. So you have all these things, and it's enough for us to be afraid of the culture, or how do we make sure we, we defend against 
LGBTQ while also being loving to reach people with the gospel? Are you sending your children off to college to worry? What's going to happen in the future? And all of those things can become overwhelming and you start fearing that more than you actually fear God. And it's good to be reminded. The Lord says to His people, don't be afraid. So let me pause here and ask you, what are you fearing more than you fear God? And I just want to encourage you and say, look... The grace that saves you is the grace that sustains you. It is the grace that will strengthen you. And what grace does is it puts steel in our backbone. Grace establishes courage. Keep looking at it now. There's an encouraging word here too. Here's the fourth thing. Number four, grace strengthens joy. Joy. One of the best attributes of being a Christian is having a deep joy in your life in the midst of really hard times. And you'll see it there in verse 1, what God says to Joshua. Verse 1, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear, you see it, and do not be dismayed. That word dismayed, you can circle it. That word dismayed means something like to do not be shattered, do not be broken, do not be discouraged. One of the greatest weapons that Satan uses against God's people is discouragement. One of the things that I've said to to Gerald and those that are leading in worship and and to have the choir here leading us, one of the things that it just does is actually provide encouragement. To have your heart filled. And the more you can consider God's grace, now look, I, I don't mean sentimentality. The more you can consider God's love and grace and forgiveness, This right here, brothers and sisters, this is why doctrine matters. This is why we preach expositionally. It's why we look at words. This is how doctrine leads you to devotion, not sentimentality. If if your devotional is a page full of somebody else's writing and one little verse, it's not helping you. It's like eating cotton candy. It tastes good. There's no nutritional value. What we need is, is take these words that God has given us What does it mean to be regenerated, to be born again? What does that mean? How did God do that? What does the word justification mean that I am instantly made right as if my sins are gone and the penalty removed? What is God doing in sanctification? What does that word mean for my life? How I'm growing more and more like Jesus. What happens when I die? What does glorification even mean? How does providence work in all things What is a smiling providence? What is a hard providence? How is God in every bit of it? What does it mean that I have the imputed righteousness? What does that even mean? The righteousness of Jesus put on me. That God, when He looks at me because of what Jesus has done, He sees the beautiful life of Christ. Look, you start taking those things, driving them into your heart, there's going to be this sense of encouragement because you realize that every bit of that is found in grace. A discouraged heart needs to think on grace. It is God being kind to His people. Let me tell you something else about grace. Here's a fourth or a fifth thing. Grace develops trust. Develops trust. Do you see it with me in in chapter 8? Here's what God says to Joshua. 
uh, do not be afraid. Look at, look at it with me. Do not be afraid or do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Take the fighting men with you and arise. You don't have to be an English professor to get this. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai. I have given past tense. Now Joshua is looking forward future tense. And God says to him, I've already done that. In other words, God has been to the future, took care of it, came back and takes us along with him. I've given it into your hand. That is God still doing it. Now this is this is why we believe in the sovereignty of God that he's ahead and he comes back to get us and brings us into it. It's God's sovereign plan. Sovereign plan. Sometimes God's sovereign plan looks like Jericho, march up to the walls, circle them up, and they fall down, there's a victory. Sometimes it's like that. Sometimes God's sovereign plan is like AI. It's much, much harder. It is still God doing it. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's hard. But it is always God. Sometimes sanctification means suffering and hurting. Sometimes you becoming more like Christ means you learning what it means to suffer. Sometimes God does things in your life for humility. You are too prideful and because he loves you, he's teaching you humility. Sometimes those things are showing us how to be more holy. Sometimes God just teaches us our need. Do you know the Lord's Prayer? Our Father art in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Use those lines sometime to guide your prayer life and get down to give us this day our daily bread. We, we forget we are actually in need of God to provide the next meal. Sometimes what God does, he just shows us you do need me. You see what grace does? Grace develops in us this real trust, gives us the ground to stand on so we understand that no matter what we're walking through, God has already gone ahead and he is now with us. Grace develops trust. Let me give you um, a fifth thing, or maybe a sixth thing grace does. Number six, grace teaches patience. Some of God's people here need to learn patience. Let me show it to you. Look at the irony of verse 2. Look what, look what God is giving the people in verse 2. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, and its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Do you remember what happened to Achan? Achan stole a little bit of what was reserved for God, and God is now saying, I'm going to give you everything that Achan stole. If Achan had just waited, if he had just waited for God to provide, you understand that that sin is an impatient master. Be careful when you are a person of now. Be careful when you live in the world of now. Now almost always means some kind of compromise. Here we're reminded that God gives good things to his people in his time. Let me show you something else about grace. Here's a number seven. Number seven. 
Grace overcomes shame. Shame. Think how terrible chapter 7 was. Remember Joshua groveling in the dirt. Remember him losing hope. Remember this leader who's supposed to be strong and courageous, wondering, what is God going to do? We should have stayed back there on the other side of the promised land. Remember all of that? It's shameful to think. It's shameful what happened to Israel. Think about how terrible it was. Now look with me to verses 5, 6, and 7. Chapter 8, verses 5, 6, and 7. I, I tried to do it with inflection when I read it, but I'll try it again here. Joshua says, I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and when they come out against us, look at that phrase, just as before. You did this once before. We shall flee before them, and they will come out before us until we have drawn up against us. Uh, drawn them away from the city, for they will say they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you will rise up from the ambush, seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. Do you understand what's happening here? God takes them back to the very same battleground, the very same scene. Last time they were routed. It was terrible and shameful. You see what God does? He uses what was shameful to them last time. He uses that to provide victory. You understand that the arena of your past sin, the things that you've done that were so terrible, that becomes the podium of grace that God sets us on. You look back on that shame and God washes it away and says grace gives victory over that shame. I want to give you one last one and I'll be done. Number eight, it's grace-centering. Grace centers our confidence, our confidence. Let, let me show you where I get that. Um, you go to verse nine. I, I'm going to try to get it there anyway. In verse nine, I read verse nine and something, some bell went off in my head when I rang it. I hope it's the right one. Let's read it and see. Verse nine. Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. When I read that, Beth, between Bethel and Ai, that sounded in some way familiar. When you look it up, what happens is the author is hearkening back to something God did hundreds of years ago. When God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 out of that people to establish his people with Abraham. I'm calling you to a place that, you, that I will show you, leave everything you know, go there. And he took him to a place that was between Bethel and Ai. And he built an altar there. And now the people are standing on the very ground that hundreds of years ago was promised to Abraham. They are reminded that God's grace, God's forgiveness, it is certain. You see, you, you, live, you live in grace or you don't really live at all. This morning as I close my sermon, I'd like to... Um, invite you just to bow with me and answer the questions in your head. What is it that's keeping you 
Listen, listen. What is it that's keeping you from living in grace? Do you believe something? I mean, you're here, so you believe something. So let me just logically walk with you. Do you believe that God exists? If so, do you believe that you are imperfect? Imperfect meaning that you're a sinner. Let's come to the New Testament. Do you believe that Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners on the cross? There's, there's Christianity. Okay, let's say you believe every bit of that, so let's bring it to your heart. Do you believe that you are a sinner that Jesus died for? If that's the case, so you, you believe that. Do you love the direction of your life more than you love the forgiveness of God? Will you today receive the free grace? Will you receive the free grace of God found in Jesus? You see, you live your life in grace or you don't really live at all. After I pray, we'll sing a song. I'll invite you to come and pray for someone you love that you know needs this message or you would like just to come and pray or you can come and talk with one of our pastors. What does it mean to give your life to Jesus? I want you to live your life in grace. Father, thank you for the grace you give us in Jesus Christ. And I pray your spirit would apply it to the hearts of your people. Call people to yourself and be honored Lord, give your people the joy of salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.